join me for a quick word of prayer. Holy God, we are, again, grateful for today, the way that you're working with us, the way that you're working in our midst. And we thank you for this opportunity to worship, to be known by you through others, and to be formed into your image. So we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Let us hear from you. Let us discern your character. And then everyone said, Amen. So this morning, we are in our final sermon series um, from a series called Gather, Grow, Go. Every year, as a church, all the Bethany locations like to um, go over these three things. Gather, grow, and go. And it's really language to help orient who we are as a church. And so two weeks ago, we learned that we gather to be formed into a community that embodies or it lives out, that joins with Christ to live out the work of Christ for the purpose of blessing and loving others. That's who we are. That's why we gather. That's why we're here, to be shaped into that. And then last week, we explored why growth matters. And so we learned how we can individually do this, how we can corporately do this, You know, we're in our sixth year as a church now. What does growth look like for us? And so we noted it's not about building a bigger, fancier, hipper, richer church. It's not about that. Instead, our growth should be directly tied and directly rooted to our desire to faithfully steward everything that God has placed and brought into our lives. So individually, this happens Corporately, this happens. And when we typically hear the word stewardship, it's normally tied to some kind of financial thing, some some kind of financial aspect. It's true. It includes that. But even more so than that, it includes our relationships, our privileges, our comforts, our church. It includes all of that. And so we talked a couple weeks ago. um, Hopefully this isn't news for everyone in the room, but here at Bethany Northeast, starting November 3rd, we are excited to move to two services. And so we'll have one at 9 a.m., we'll have one at 1045, and we'll offer a second service of worship here in this space. Um, And all of this is coming out of a desire to faithfully steward every opportunity for growth that is happening in this church. And so this isn't news for many of us, but the national average for adults to children in your typical church is five to one, five adults for every child. Here, it is 1.5 to one, right? So it's a very big difference. And in an attempt to create the best environment that we possibly can to allow for discipleship, for faithful discipleship to happen in classrooms. The staff, the local advisory team, many here have prayerfully discerned and confirmed that God seems to be moving us in this direction. This is a leap of faith for us as a community. But this is one of the reasons why we want to move this way. Another reason is that as we shift to two services, we will have more room in this space here to participate in some more transformative discipleship practices that will continue to form us into the image of God. 
So again, this is exciting. This is stretching. But as we aim to be faithful stewards of all the discipleship opportunities that God is inviting us into, this is something we are actively working on. So if you haven't filled out the second service survey, there's a bit.ly in your bulletin. Please fill that out. We'd love to hear from you. Um, If you haven't checked out the ministry team tables outside, there's also spaces there to check out. Um, Pray about what God might be inviting you into this, this year, this upcoming year. And God is working in our midst. God is calling us as a church to be his body. We're excited for this to happen. So November 3rd, again, we'll have first go of two services. 9 o'clock, 10.45, and that is uh, moving forward. So we are a church that gathers, we're a church that grows. We gather to be formed into a community that embodies and joins in the work of God around us. And we grow in our faith, individually and corporately, to faithfully steward everything that God puts in our lives. And now this week, we are going to explore what God's call to go looks like. What does going look like in our lives? Gather, grow, go. This is all shorthand in Bethany for the mission of our church, why we do what we do. So as we reflect on what it means to go, let's start where every good sermon should start, with food. There are few foods that elicit such strong opinions as pizza. Am I right? Does anyone have, like, a go-to pizza place in the city? I mean, are relatively new to the area? Watershed? Okay. Anyone else? What's your favorite place? I, I, I miss that. Delancey. All right. Anyone else? One other? Oh, that's a good one. That one's just, like, down there, right? Really good. Lots of places. Come on now. You can't beat the Costco slice, am I right? So we all probably have opinions about this, right? And we stop and think for a moment. What's happening when we actually answer questions like this? We all have a vision of what the best kind of pizza is. And we base our suggestions off an idealized version of whatever that looks like. So if you are from New York, right, your New York slice is going to be what? It's going to be thin slice, tomato sauce, infused with herbs. It has to be infused with herbs, right? Mozzarella cheese, sprinkle of Parmesan, foldable, couple bucks. That's pizza for you. If you're from Chicago, it's a different world, right? You got your deep dish. You have your couple inches filled with fillings, right? Buttery, flaky crust. I like pizza a lot. Y'all aren't too excited about this. You have all these things happening. Sauces on top, game changer, okay? Then if you're from Sicily, you're all about the square slice. So it'll be a different shape, different kind of dough, focaccia-type dough. If you're from Naples, different. If you're from Detroit, different. All these things happen, different kinds of pizzas. And everyone's got their own priorities and preferences when it comes to pizza. We can't talk about it without having our own curated idea shaping how we feel about other kinds. So a couple years back, there's a famous food writer. His name's Sam Sifton. And he talks about this 
um, this very phenomenon. He coins the term the pizza cognition theory. The pizza cognition theory. And it goes something like this. In terms of our cognitive development, the first slice of pizza that we ever have as a child that we can remember becomes pizza, prototypical pizza. And every other pizza that we ever have, we compare to that. We compare all the visions of that to this first version that we have as a child. And this is how we develop as humans. So he coins this phrase, the pizza cognition theory. I'm sure you haven't actually thought this hard about pizza. No one actually probably should. It's just food. You eat it. But the fact that there are opinions about what the best pizza is actually tells us something that's more fundamental to who we are as people. We like what we like. And those likes come from somewhere. Sometimes they're innate. Sometimes they're preferences that just we're born with. And then other times, they're formed. We come to our conclusions because of the environments around us. But end of the day, we all have beliefs about what the best fill-in-the-blank is, the best sports team, the best policy, what the best schools are, what the best jobs are. We base this off of an idealized vision of fill-in-the-blank, and then we compare everything to that benchmark once we establish it. We do this as people on things more important than pizza. And so if we do this with all sorts of things, is it really crazy to see that many times we do the exact same thing when it comes to church? We have an idealized vision of what it should look like, and we compare every iteration of it to that benchmark. When I was in grade three, I, um, I used to do the overheads at church. And so, sing the songs, you have to make sure they're the right way, they have to be flipped, and then it projects on the wall, everyone's doing it. If you have to change a word, you get your colored marker, you fill it in. So I did the overheads starting grade two, grade three, all through church. And then we switched to PowerPoint. And this was a big deal. This was a huge deal. We switched to PowerPoint. And in fact, some people left the church. (laughs) We were a Pentecostal church, and so we took holiness very seriously, right? And computers are the gateway to evil. So we, we didn't do the computer thing. Technology wasn't seen as uh, a great thing when you're in that kind of holiness tradition. For some, the ideal vision was hymns. We needed to go back to the red back hymnal, call the numbers every Sunday, do your thing. Moving to overheads was a concession. Moving to computers, PowerPoint, too much. Too much of a stretch. And so, for some, that was reason enough to break fellowship with the church. It sounds unreasonable now, but for some in the church, they left because the vision or the ideal, what made church good, what made it acceptable, what made it the best, was no longer being met. This idealized vision. Of course, we aren't the first church. We weren't the first church to have people leave or separate 
based off of disillusionment from a personal derived ideal. Each of us probably have our own stories like this. But here's the deal. Paul, a Jewish Roman citizen, he goes to Corinth. And this is a big port city, transient city, bustling, bustling place. And so many people are listening to him that a church starts to form. And then he's like, oh, well, Corinth, let's have a church. And then he starts planting churches all along the west side of Greece. So all throughout western Greece, multiple churches are planted. And it's all by Paul. And then he leaves and he goes to spread the gospel elsewhere. And as he's away, he finds out that the church in Corinth seems to have abandoned the teaching of the gospel that everything had been founded on. He, the church shifted. And super apostles had come to the church And these super apostles were people who were really skilled in oration, really skilled in rhetoric. They connected well with a Greek audience. And so what they're doing is they're misleading the community. And what's happening is the community is chasing or following these different leaders with these different ideals. And the community starts to actually fracture in different directions. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the book, to address the church and try and call them back to unity, tries to bring them back together. Say, hey, we were founded on these ideas around the person of Jesus, the gospel of Christ. Come back to that. Let's let's focus on that. So he tries to bring them back together, but the church rejects the letter. So after they reject 1 Corinthians, he goes to them personally. He visits them. He's rejected too. And eventually, after some time, Paul leaves. He sends another letter, and he's like, Corinthians, what's happening here is not pleasing to God. And he writes a letter called the Tearful Letter. And we don't actually have copies of the letter. We have lots of allusions to it. We have lots of talk about it, but we don't have physical copies of that letter. It's lost. But remarkably, the church in Corinth actually for the most part, repents. They turn around and they're like, actually, we're starting to realize as we are following the super apostles, our community is fracturing. We need to be reconciled together. We need to be reconciled with each other. We want to be reconciled with you, Paul. So they actually reach out to Paul. And this is the ground for 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a response to a call to be reconciled by the church. So as the community's fracturing, 2 Corinthians is addressing this. So this is the occasion. Are you getting what's happening around 2 Corinthians? Like Paul is addressing a community with history. He's addressing a church that's been broken, a community that's been fractured. And he's addressing a community where everyone had different ideas concerning what the church should look like, what the church should value. Who should lead the church? They're following all these different leaders. And then Paul is writing to a church that he started, that rejected him, that has repented of their wrongs, and now wants to reconcile with God and Paul and with one another. So if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. And notice how Paul is trying to help the community put itself back together by sharing his own story of failing 
when he was a Pharisee. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There is a connection that we can't miss embedded in this text right here. There's a backstory we need to remember. In this verse, Paul is alluding back to when he was a Pharisee persecuting the Christians. Like when he used to think about Jesus as a false teacher or anyone associated with Jesus who he thought was deceived, in Paul's mind, Jesus and his followers were misleading people away from true religion. Right? The Pharisaic Judaism that Paul was raised in, that he was trained in, anything that was leading away from that was false teaching. And so for Paul, this is how he's approaching it. He's seeing followers of Jesus, and he persecutes them. Because the way that they talked about God, the way that they practiced their faith, did not sync up with Paul, again, formerly Saul. They didn't sync up with what he knew to be true. So in verse 16, the we there is referring to Paul and his ministry associates. But after encountering Jesus, he no longer sees anyone according to the flesh. He no longer sees them in an unspirited way. After his encounter with God, he can't look at someone and not see God in them. From now on, he doesn't look at anyone without seeing the imprint of God on someone's life. So he used to think Jesus was a fraud, a false teacher. But now, after encountering Jesus, having met Jesus in a miraculous way, Paul's perspective on life, on God, resultantly on how he treats his neighbor, is broken wide open. And the encounters... This, enc- this counters the wisdom of his culture. This counters the wisdom that he grew up learning, the ways he used to think about God. In verse 17, he is a new creation now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 16 and 17. Another way of saying this is, after Paul came to know the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, Paul had to reconcile with his past. Paul had to reconcile with his past. If you're following in your bulletin, that's your first one. He had to reconcile with his past. He had to face his past after encountering the one true God. He had to reconcile with former ways of thinking, with his biases, with lost hopes and dreams that he had and that he used to have for himself. He had to reevaluate what he thought the best and the worst were. He had to repent and face the reality of his actions that had harmed so many. And he had to see how, even though he desired to be faithful, the way that he acted upon his desire was actually unfaithful. But then, he had to take that experience and live out a new future. Right? He, he didn't just stop there. He had to live out a new future. 
So he didn't have this come to Jesus moment and then keep doing what he was doing. After his encounter with Jesus, his life was never the same. He couldn't look at anyone in the same ways that he had seen them before. Whereas Paul before, again, he's the kind of person who would persecute, persecute and kill false teachers, believers of false teachers. Now, after meeting Jesus, his encounter with God, now Paul is the kind of person who wants them to be reconciled to the true God. So as someone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. His old ways of seeing the world have passed away. And now, as a new creation, he sees and engages the world with the heart and compassion of God. Paul has reconciled with his past and embraced a new future. And here he calls the Corinthians to do the same thing. Remember, he's talking to a church that's looking to reconcile. So he's saying, look at my life. It happened for me. It happened in my life. So he urges the church, there's hope. At the same time, he calls us to the same. There's hope. So Paul is encouraging us to reconcile with our past, verse 16 and 17. And now in the next two verses, 18 and 19, he's urging the Corinthians to reunite with God. He's urging the Corinthians to reunite with God. Verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is a new creation. The Corinthians who had turned from the teachings of the super apostles and are now or, and the teachings that were against the gospel, and they're now following the goodness and what was there before, they're now following him, they are new creations. They're seeing things in a new way. And we're called to be new creations in Christ as well. In the day-to-day, this means that how we see others matters. How we see others matters. Expanding on Paul's words in verse 16, how we perceive others matters. We just looked at it. Paul used to think that Jesus was a bad dude. Right? False teacher was misleading people away from true religion. But once he encounters him, his perspective changes. Once he was reunited with God, his posture changes. His old views have passed away New ways of seeing have come. He is a new creation. And now after sharing how new life with Christ personally changed his life, right? how new life changed how he saw the world, what the best thing was, what the worst things were, now Paul is inviting the Corinthian church to be transformed in the same way. So Paul tells them that as Christians... We are called to the work of reconciliation. And specifically in the context of a fractured community, a splintered community, here Paul is talking in verse 19 about not counting trespasses against others. Forgiveness. Forgiving. 
reconciliation starting with forgiveness. And this is hard. There are other ways to talk about reconciliation. Here at Bethany, we have groups that make up our church-wide ministry of racial justice and reconciliation. And there are things happening across all locations that we can get involved in, we can participate in, in this crucial work, right? This work of racial reconciliation on a systemic level. The hope is to do it on a systemic level. And this is really important work. Here in the text, in the context of a divided, fractured church, Paul offers a very practical first step for the Corinthian church to move forward. Forgive. Forgive. Don't count the wrongs you've experienced against them. The text says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the world's trespasses against, him, against them. And to those who claim Christ as Lord of our lives, God is entrusting the same message of reconciliation to us. Forgive. It's worth repeating that Paul's call here isn't to be naive about the brokenness of the world. He's not saying forgive and overlook. He knows that that is foolishness. There are wrongs that we will face that will be unforgettable. And forgiveness and our responses to evil should always be discerned with wisdom. And so especially if there's situations with immediate harm or danger, we respond with action and with wisdom. We do that. But again, in the context of this text here, Paul is urging the Corinthians to reunite with God and catch this, reunite to God by reuniting with others through the practice of forgiveness. Reunite to God through reuniting with others. So see and acknowledge acknowledge the brokenness that you've experienced. And then see and acknowledge the brokenness that has formed the oppressor. See the evil that has formed the oppressor And then have compassion on the one who has wronged you. Do not hold their trespasses against them. Why? Because their view of themselves and the world has been so distorted that they are unable to recognize that in acts of oppression, they are actually oppressing the very God that created them. This is literally life, or Paul's life story. Like he lived this story. In his quest to eradicate what he perceived as evil, he became evil. Every act of harm that we receive or that we inflict is an act against the God who created everyone, including ourselves and the world around us. And so we forgive just as God forgives. And we seek reconciliation just as Christ reconciled himself to us. We can say these words pretty easily, but living it out is a completely different ballgame.
This takes immense effort. For me, one of the people who have shaped how forgiveness looks in my life is my mother. You know, her parents were not the greatest parents in the world. You know, they did, they did things where in a, if it was a different time or a different place, should probably be in jail. Like, there are things that happened to her in her life that were not great at all. And all her life, she's in this process of forgiving her. Process, right? It's not just a single event. It's a process. And she's in this, and we're in this with her. This past summer, my grandmother passed away, so there's some closure on these relationships. But my grandfather is old, and he has um, pretty severe dementia, so he can't really take care of himself. And for me, when I look at my mom, just being in the room with him shows me that she is seeing through the brokenness of her experience, and she's starting to see the brokenness that created him. Like she's caring for him now when he can't care from her for himself. And that is forgiveness in action. Again, it's a team effort, not just one thing. And we don't do this without wisdom. But this is the kind of posture that makes reconciliation possible. This is the posture that makes it possible to reconcile. On an individual level, that's what forgiveness can look like. Then zooming back out to this fractured church community that Paul's talking about, zooming out to a community that has divided itself and wants to reconcile but doesn't know how, forgive. That's the first word of advice that Paul gives to them. Paul tells them to reunite with God by reuniting and reconciling with each other. And if there is division in any of the communities that we find ourselves in, God calls the same for that community. So far, we've heard Paul tell us two things. Reconcile with your past and then reunite with God by reuniting through relationship with others. And now as he finishes this chapter, Paul urges the Corinthians, and he urges us, to recommit to faithfulness. Recommit to faithfulness. We are therefore ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. By reconciling with our past and reuniting with God through reconciled relationships with our neighbors, Paul is inviting the Corinthians to recommit to faithfulness, to buy in, to be an ambassador for Christ. Believe in what you say you stand for. It's at this point where if I were in your shoes right now, the cynic in me would start to get a little antsy. Oh yes, here it is. Like Recommit to faithfulness. This sermon is a go sermon. It's a roundabout way to try and get me to serve more. Right? Plug in more. 
We're moving in two services. Like, this is, the, this is where the bait is now. Like, we, we've got them. Right? Gather, grow, go. Here's the big ask. Not quite. As I was preparing this week, I kept coming back to this idea that we are ambassadors for Christ. And it seems like ambassadors for Christ and the theme of going should connect really easily. But I felt troubled just thinking about these ideas connecting all week, really, until like yesterday. I didn't feel like I could parse out the direction that God wanted for us when we're talking about going and ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. Above all else, that's what we're called to be. And then it hit me. We're not ambassadors for Paul or for some super apostle or for the church in Corinth or for even Bethany or a specific tradition, a denomination. We're not ambassadors for them above our role as ambassadors for Christ. Everything we've looked at today is trying to direct us to this point. We are ambassadors for Christ. And today, Paul calls us to recommit to faithfulness as ambassadors for Christ. For us specifically, moving to two services won't happen without growing pains. It also won't happen without us here. And for some, more than others, transitions can be really hard. Change is hard. If this is hard for you, take the time you need to grieve. Like some of you have been here since the beginning. You came with ideas of what this church is going to be like. And as the church has grown, as you've grown, maybe those things that connected you you and your Bethany experience and the ideals that you had, maybe those things started to drift apart a little bit. Right, the ways you describe the best church don't seem to be overlapping in the ways that they might have done so. If this is you, here is the word that I felt like God placed on my heart for us this week. It's okay. It is okay, friends. What I'm about to say might sound crazy and counterproductive, But do not be held hostage here by your history. Do not do that. Do not be held hostage by your history here. We are ambassadors for Christ. And as one of your pastors, as we're moving to two services, I want you to feel the freedom to go. Go into one service. Go into one service and serve once a month. That'd be great. Go to one service, serve in the other one. One time, multiple times. This is great. Go. And sit with God and sit with your family and discern how God wants to shape you over the next year. There is absolute freedom here to go. Go here and go deep. Join with your church in shaping the future, shaping this community, shaping 
so many lives. Go. But I also want you to know that that freedom to go extends even to go to another church. Like, I'm not sure who this is a word for. I felt this so strong this week. I don't know who it's for. This also isn't like a televangelist ploy, okay? (laughs) I'm not sure what's happening. If this doesn't land with you, let it slide. But I felt that this needs to be said this week. If you discern with your community and with God that your best discipleship might happen somewhere else, go knowing that we bless you and we wish you nothing but the best. Like, I don't wish for this to happen. We will be sad to see anyone leave. But God is not bound to this church. God is working in so many ways. And even though God is working here, if you must, go and participate in the work of God around you and make disciples in the places that God brings you to. God is not bound to this church, but God is here. And so please hear me again. This isn't some kind of like, again, directed, passive-aggressive thing to anyone. This was just a word that I felt I couldn't get away from this week. And as someone who grew up in church, living kind of in church transitions, in the middle of church splits, multiple times in my life, there always seemed to be this unspoken pressure sometimes around big church decisions, like, Can I still come? Am I still welcome here? Church doesn't feel the same way it used to. Is this still the place for me? Yes, still come. Yes, there is place for you. But also, yes, obey God. We welcome you. And as we move to two services, I wish that everyone will find a place here to participate in the work of God by the people of God. But above all else, as a pastor, as one who cares for you, as an ambassador for Christ, be formed in the ways that God's calling you to be formed, whatever this next season holds. Obey God's call into community. And if that community is here, let us be the place, the kind of place, that commits and recommits to faithfulness as we submit our ideals of what's best to discover the best that God has for us. Bethany Northeast, let's live into the freedom of God as ambassadors of Christ. And let us be a reconciling presence that makes Christ known and develops disciples of Jesus. Gather, grow, go. That is why we're here. Go deep. If the band would come up. Perhaps you need time to pray. And there will be people over here to pray with you um, and discern with you. Again, these are all things that we want to do in community. 
But even more than that, I hope you hear the blessing and the call that Paul is saying all through this chapter and through the entire book that he's saying. Reconciliation is a work that starts with forgiveness. And it's also a work that individually happens. It's also a work that we're called into as a body, as a corporate body. And as we go into that work, there is freedom to move. And so friends, obey the Lord. As we worship, obey the Lord. Nothing would make God happier than that. And so let us sing, let us pray, let us reflect. And let us uh, worship God.